Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March 19th, 2019. <clears throat> so for those of you that like, like me that like numbers, it's 3-19-19. Yeah, I know it's not a big pattern, but it's a pattern. You can play with the three and make it a bigger pattern if you really want to. Anyway, uh, that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're not talking about numeric patterns, but patterns do apply to when we're talking about gardening. And today, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about container gardening. As it's a Tuesday, it is time for a Just Jack show. That's right. You know, pick a subject and break it down for you and, and, and kind of use this as hopefully edutainment. That's my goal with this show all the time, but especially the Tuesday shows, edutainment. I'm trying to make you educated and be a little bit entertaining at the same time so you're not bored. I try not to be the guy that's like, it's really important to grow your own food for self-sufficiency. Try to bring some humor in and, and, and what have you. And uh, I think this is a really great subject today, and I realize it's one we haven't really gone deeply into Uh, recently, but we have, but we have not. Uh, I've talked quite a bit about wicking beds, and we'll even talk about that a little bit today. Uh, but what we're talking about, because that is a type of container gardening, we're going to really focus on container gardening today. And we're going to do that for a lot of reasons. One is because I think it, it opens up opportunities for people that otherwise really couldn't grow much at all. And two, I think it presents the opportunity to grow a lot more than people think it does. I think we got container gardening. You can grow a, a pepper in a pot. We're going to talk to you about it today. You know, like if you're just growing one pepper in one pot, you're not getting it, and you're not getting anywhere near the production out of that one container that you can get. We'll give you some ideas of where to get containers, how to get them cheap, how to get them free, uh, how to build soil in them, some of the stuff that you can grow in them, uh, all the big advantages. There, there's actually like eight huge advantages over growing in the ground and growing in containers. That doesn't mean there's not advantages to growing in the ground. If you want to plant, you know, a lot of corn, you need to grow in the ground. But there are eight huge advantages to growing in containers, especially for a lot of the high turnover, high production crops that can feed us uh, or long producing crops like peppers and tomatoes that, yeah, it's one plant, but it can produce a little bit every week for a whole season. Lots of advantages when we look at that. We'll talk about some crops. I'm going to go through some greens that you probably don't think about growing uh, that you might want to, especially in containers. In fact, we can grow an entire plethora of greens in a container with some flowers that may also be edibles and some herbs and one big plant. We'll talk about how to do that today. Uh, we'll talk about self-watering containers, also known as wicking beds, and uh, how they can be big or small. And we'll talk about getting really creative in the end, how there's no limits to what we can do, companion planning, succession planning, getting permission to use other people's space, using vertical spaces, and how to expand at will with Container Garden. So it should be a good show. Before we get to it, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is ButcherBox.com. We're talking about the vegetative side of things today on the show. You know, growing, you're not going to grow a chicken in a container. I guess you could do it in a chicken tractor, right? But, you know, when it comes to livestock, we, we would like our chicken to be pastured, our pork to be pastured, our beef to be grass-fed. And if you buy from ButcherBox, that's what you're going to get. Small producers with a great big outlet in ButcherBox. 
and high-quality stuff. I mean, I've said it before, but it's the truth, man. When I go to the grocery store, we buy meat there. My wife won't even won't even try. She's just like, well, you go get the meat. Because she knows I'm going to be like, eh, I don't really like that steak or, oh, look at the way that is. Like, I'm particular. I want meat cut right. I want quality And I know what I'm looking for. And when I get my butcher box in and I open it up and I look in there, I, I, I get what I expect from them. They're really, really awesome. Great partner. Been with us over a year now. And uh, they are happy to be partners with TSP. Uh, I've had a couple of you guys email me with some hiccups, uh, some mistakes by butcher box. Uh, my buddy over there, Daniel, I get in touch with him and he fixes it like immediately. That's what I'm looking for in a partner. Especially this is a new company. They're going to make some mistakes. Will they make it right? And the answer has been yes. Quality product, quality partner. Check them out today, butcherbox.com. And remember, MSB members, well, you can get free bacon for life uh, as a ButcherBox customer uh, with the discount code that is in the MSB for you. Uh, next up, have you ever listened to this show and thought to yourself, how the hell does Jack know so much about so many things, especially about homesteading stuff? Um, it's a lot of years, it's a lot of work, it's a lot of experience, but I'll tell you what, my foundation, honest to God, I have to give it to Backwoods Home Magazine. Back in 1993, I was a young man that had just gotten out of military service. I came to uh, Fort Worth, actually Denton, Texas area, Louisville to be exact, and I stayed with a friend. I drove my $400 car, which was a Mustang II, down here to Texas, and it promptly died in the middle of LBJ Freeway. If you've ever been there, you know how bad that is. I pushed it uphill while people blew the horn at me instead of helping me so much for, you know, uh, helpful, happy Texans. Uh, I got it onto the thing. My friend came and got me and towed me to his house. It was a big problem, and it resulted in me having about six weeks before I could get my car on the road. So I was stranded in at my friend's house with no vehicle for six weeks before I could get the car running again. And not far from me, there was a mall, and, you know, there was a Starbucks in the bookstore. That was a thing at the time. And you're going back again, 1993. We're well over 20 years in the past here. And I would walk about a mile down to that mall during the day for something to do, walk around the mall and look at stores and stuff and go in the bookstore, and I'd buy a coffee and read a bunch of stuff so I didn't feel like I was being a bum and just taking advantage of the bookstore. And one of the things I found on the magazine shelf was a copy of Backwoods Home. And one of the first things that I did when I got a real job and got my car running again and stuff like that and had some money in my pocket was I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. And I was a subscriber like many of you were for over 20 years all the way up until uh, recently they discontinued the print edition of Backwoods Home. And I was pretty sad about it. And then they brought it back. And it's kind of a full circle story when I tell you all that because one of the first things that they did is come to me and say, we want to renew as a sponsor of the show now. So they did that, and they're back, and it is amazing to me that I get to work with people like Masada Yub and Jackie Clay, uh, Dave Duffy, uh, John Silvera, et cetera, writers over there, who I, I literally grew up reading and wanting to be like and learning from. You know, if you check out Backwoods Home, you'll see why I've been a subscriber for more than two decades. I love all my sponsors. Don't get me wrong. I love all my sponsors. They're incredibly loyal. They're incredible people, or I wouldn't have them. But do you know how easy it is to get on the air and endorse a company that you've been a customer of for 20-plus years? I had a, a good laugh. I was at a, a convention one time, and Backwoods Home was there, and it was uh, uh, not Dave's kids, but Dave's daughter's kids running around trying to trying to hustle up some, some stuff with Barter, and they were trying to barter a, subscri a one-year subscription to Backwoods Home to me, and I'm like, 
Guys, you're at the wrong place, man. I've been a customer since 1993 before you was born. Uh, but it was good to see them out doing that. That's a great publication. Check them out today. There isn't a better one for all things homesteading, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and libertarian thought than Backwoods Home Magazine. With that, let's go ahead and dive into the main subject today. Again, we're going to talk about container gardens. I want to start out with why I think containers are for all gardeners. Now, when I was a kid, I've talked about this a lot. I worked in my grandfather's garden for him. And we had about, it wasn't quite a quarter acre. It was probably somewhere like about one-tenth, one I guess, of an acre uh, garden, which is a fairly good-sized garden. That's about an entire you know, McMansion lot as a garden. And the uh, total property he had was just under an acre. And we had, you know, maybe a tenth. Now that I think about it that way, it was probably closer to two-tenths of an acre. So close to a quarter-acre garden. And I imagine if I told my grandpa that I wanted to go get a bunch of buckets or tires or IBC toads, which he wouldn't even have known what that was, and start doing some container gardening, he would have thought I was plumb crazy because we had so much that came out of that garden. And I think even there, there were some things I could have done if I even knew what they were back then as a kid that just really weren't practical in his gardens. I think they're for everybody. And But the other side of that then is most people aren't blessed with the most fertile topsoil in the world like we had where I grew up in Pennsylvania, where every other you know field is a farm field and, and, and you know everything just grows. And there's a lot of places in the country with a lot of fertility problems. So even though it'll work for everybody, there's a huge segment of people that it will work better for uh, than, than what you can do in the ground, especially starting out. You can get started really, really quick. Here's some things, though, that they'll let, that'll let you do that I think kind of crosses the border. It doesn't matter how good your, your soil is or how great your climate is that, that you can do with containers that you can't do without them. One is you can grow crops outside of your geographic range. If we have containers, we can grow plants indoors, kind of like starting your seeds in little pots. But some plants don't really transplant very well. Or maybe we need to really grow them to a much larger size to meet our short growing season once we move outdoors. Certain squashes in all spring to mind. They really don't do well starting in a little bitty pot uh, or a little bitty cup or something like that. But we can take a squash with a real long growing season. We can grow it up to, you know, where it's just about getting too big to be in the house and move that container outside late in the season, and we can then get a good crop. We can grow squash indoors until it's ready to start putting on squash in a larger container, and maybe get some help and move it outdoors and get production in an area where we just get killed and decimated by squash bugs. Now, they might eventually get the plant, but we'll, we'll get something before the, they take it away. There's a lot of different things that we can do with that. We can grow plants that we can move around throughout the season. Maybe they need shade in the hottest part of the year, but early on they need sun, and it wouldn't work in our climate without a container. So there's a lot of that we can do. Um, another thing that it lets us do is it lets us, if we have land, if we have garden beds, if we have our little market garden or a little kitchen garden that we're growing in the ground, if we have, we also want to do kind of a lot of high, and we're going to talk about this today, a lot of high turnover stuff, greens, et cetera, like that, cut and come again, succession planting and stuff like that. We can do that in containers and leave that, that open ground space for our larger crops. I mentioned corn. Uh, in the in the uh, in the intro today, I'm actually growing corn in a four foot by four foot container this year, just to prove it can be done. A bantam corn, 
But trust me, if I had soil like I did in Pennsylvania, I might grow a lot more of it. I really might. And so certain plants do better in the ground. Big tomato plants, big indeterminate tomatoes. I, you know, I do a lot of container gardening with tomatoes, but if you have large indeterminate tomatoes that grow eight foot tall, you know, those are things that maybe take up more space or cucumber or things like that. Not that we can't do those in containers, but those plants kind of really excel in the ground where containers we can do a lot of intensive growing. And we can kind of keep that salad flow going along with our more staple crops. Um, it allows you to grow food anywhere if you can find sun. You don't even need soil. If you live in an apartment and you have a balcony that faces the sun, you'd be surprised how much you can grow. One of the things I'm including in the show notes today is a link to a video I did back in 2010 where I had, I think, eight 4x8 gardens in the ground. But I also had a ton of container gardens on my deck at my place in Arlington. And when you look and you, you, you watch that video, especially like the second half when I get into the containers, it, I think it'll blow you away if you've never seen it at the amount that I can grow in one container with, again, and we'll talk more about this in a bit, succession planting. So we have one big plant that we're cutting, and we know we can only cut it so many times, and we've got a little plant sitting underneath there just waiting, and when we cut that big plant back, that second plant just takes off. So there's just so much that we can do, and now we open up the patio, we open up the deck, and even those of us that have garden space, you know, we can maximize and grow so much more. Or some of you live, and I've heard from some of you, and I totally understand, you know, having grandkids now and having had a son in the past that was young and living at home uh, before he grew up, you know, I only have this small yard. And my kids play ball and tag and stuff in the backyard because I actually let my kids go outside and play. And if I, if I put a garden in, then I lose that space that I have because i got a small yard. Well, you know, that's great for the pool deck and great for the back porch. And, you know, you can do so much with containers. Again, check the video out. Uh, I'll mention it it's, as, a, as a reference a few times as we go through today. But there's just so much you can do with space that you wouldn't think of as garden space with containers. Um, it opens up new space opportunities. You, there's so much we can do with vertical spaces. I've had people say, well, I've only got this one little spot on my, my porch. Well, if we put up some trellis behind it, like on that, cause usually if you have a back porch on a, a balcony, you kind of usually have like a sliding door, you go out, and you got a rail. You only got that little bit of space between you and the rail. And then if you want to have a little barbecue out there or some chairs or something, you only got some space. So maybe you go all the way, let's say if, you, if your door opens on the left side as you're looking out, usually what people do is put their containers all the way to the right side up against that wall. And maybe you can fit a couple containers there and think, well, I, I can't do that much. But if we put some lattice or trellis on that wall and trellis something like beans or cucumber up there, all of a sudden you expand what you can do exponentially. Then we can take and get some rail boxes and put them on that rail. And now all of a sudden that's not really occupying our space. With herbs and greens and some staple crops, you know, you can probably eat three or four days a week, eat something that you grew. And you really can't do that any other way without resorting to containers. And it will also help you do something I'm really fond of, which is turn some, some plants we think of as annuals into perennials. Um, I grow about 18 peppers a year in five-gallon buckets. And at the end of the season, when it's going to freeze, I just prune them back, and I just bring them in my garage. And then I bring them back out once it warms up, and I have peppers right away. 
So that's something you can do with containers. And if you're wondering, like, well, Jack lives in Texas, he can get away with that. How, you know, can you do that elsewhere? Um, I haven't heard from, from him for a while. I kind of hope nothing happened to him. But there's a guy that's listened to the show for years named Brent, and he lives up in Prince Edward Island, uh, Canada. That's about as cold as I would ever tolerate in my life, I think. I don't think I'd go any further north than that. And he had peppers that were in their fifth season from doing this. So, and there's other plants we can do that with, plants that people don't generally think of that way. Uh, I don't do it here because it's just overwinters, but Swiss chard, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, Swiss chard will overwinter fine for you in a container if you get it out of the super freezing cold. Uh, it will handle light freezes and frosts and even a few heavy freezes here and there if it's not like that continuous stuff like y'all get in the Northeast where it stays below freezing for three weeks straight without coming up. That'll kill it, but if it's in a container and we bring that container in, we can overwinter Swiss chard. Celery, well, I'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, you can overwinter celery. I have celery plants in my greenhouse that are two and a half years old now that were grown from the core of celery from the grocery store. Now, it's an aquaponics system, but it's nothing you can't do with containers as well. So there's just so much that we can do with containers. That's why I think that like, no matter where you are, there's probably some container gardening that makes sense for you. There's also a lot of advantages. One of the big advantages with container gardens is there's very few weeds. Um, since we're going to end up putting some sort of a soil mixture that we're going to make or buy into it, we're starting out with something that's not already a, you know, a seed bank. Anywhere you go on earth, you look down and see dirt, there's more seed in that dirt than you can imagine. This is why stuff just grows places. And you'll, you can actually see it by creating what are called triggers for growth. So, for instance, I have a, a like a big square pit that I built to get rid of some brush uh, through fire. And I burned just a ton of stuff there last year. And the weeds, if you want to call them that, that are growing in that pit right now are totally different plants than the plants growing four feet to the left and right of it because that fire triggered those seeds. Well, if we guard, we're going to create a different kind of disturbance other than fire. We're going to create decompaction because we're going to dig and till up the soil on some level. Even with no till, initially we're going to loosen that soil up and whatever seed is in that seed bank is going to get, if it's, a, if it's triggered by loosened soil, which many weeds are, those are your hairnet weeds, it's going gonna, it's gonna to trigger and you're going to have those weeds come up. But when we go into a container, we're not going to have much to do with weeds and because everything's going to be completely non-compacted, whatever weeds do pop up, pretty much you just reach in with two fingers and pull them straight out. Even deep-rooted weeds, you stay on it just a little bit. You don't have grass. You know That's one of the things I have here in Texas and everywhere in Texas, Bermuda grass. And you put a garden bed in, even where there's no Bermuda grass, and it's like the Bermuda grass is like, oh, oh you put a garden in, huh? That's a nice garden you got there, man. Be ashamed if somebody climbed into it, like me, and all of a sudden Bermuda grass starts climbing into your, your beds. Uh, it, that just doesn't happen with container gardens. You know, they don't, it, it's, it's, it's pretty, you know, creepy, crawly stuff, but it doesn't crawl up two feet up the side of a pot and get into your, 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 your bed. So very few weeds. Easy and fast to build fertility. Uh, you can go out and just buy really good gardening soil. Uh, this, this stuff, this, uh, organics, uh, premium organics or something, I'll look it up. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, but Miracle Grow, of all people, is putting it out. And, uh, I used to decap all of my container gardens in my aviary. They're built in 100 gallon Rubbermaid tubs. 
And uh, I, 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 there is the ability of a human being to look at good soil, to feel good soil, to smell good soil, and go, this is good soil. Because I think as a being, as a creature, we are horticultural people. And horticultural, I've talked about this before, but I learned this from Toby Hemingway. Horticulture is the, I, I knew it, but I, I, I learned this way of seeing it and understanding it from Toby Hemingway. Um, horticulture is the culture of plants. And what most of society practices is agriculture. Agriculture does not mean the culture of plants. It doesn't mean the growing of crops or it doesn't mean the production of food. Agriculture actually means the culture of fields. That's what the word means. And that's why I think we've lost touch with how to really build and maintain soil fertility because we're culturing fields instead of plants. And plants demand soil. And so when we look at it from the standpoint of what does this plant need, when we look at what the soil provides. And this stuff from miracle Grow, and I know they're a Scots company and they have a loose affiliation with Monsanto and all, but my view, guys, is if you want to make big corporations change and they put out a quality, all-natural product that is organic, OMI-listed, etc., then you buy that product. And that says, hey, there's a market for this. Please do more of that. That's how you change corporate behavior, by not voting with your money when they put out garbage and by voting with your money when they put out something solid. So I really like that, but it doesn't matter. You're going to start out with fertility. Now, when we take products, and I, I have a whole fertility product uh, review set up for you guys. I'll put a link in the show notes today where you can see my entire fertility program. I just did a show on building fertility in garden beds. Uh, I talk about products like uh, Blood and Bone. I uh, talk about products like Dr. Earth Fertilizer, which is great, fungal inoculant products, uh, products like the new Fish Newer product that we have available in the MSB with a discount from fishnewer.com that is an outstanding product. I'm becoming very impressed with it. Any type of fertility amendment, when we put it on the ground, you know, it's going to rain, some of it's going to atrophy away. You've got, you know, an unlimited sink as to how far down that product can go into the soil. And, It can disperse outward. When we take these amendments and we put them into a container and then we mulch over that, we have very little to no loss of that fertility. 100% of what we apply remains available to the plant. So not only can we start out with great fertility, we can build and we can reestablish fertility very, very easily with amendments. It's easy to work raised uh, um, uh, container gardens. And when I, when I talk about work them, what I mean is, to to go out and to put new mulch on, to pull any weeds that are out, to kind of dig the soil up a little bit of the trout, to plant, to harvest. It's it's easy because they're raised. And most containers that we're going to work with are going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of at least 18 inches tall to two to three feet tall. Additionally, if we're using like big flower pots or something like that, it's real easy to kind of build a little bench for them to sit on or something so that we're at like waist height. No bending over. And if you if you look at it that way, there will be some weeds. You're going to build all this fertility. You're going to have all these plants. You're going to be out there taking, making sure the soil stays moist. You're going to have you know some stuff that flies through the air and lands in it. Birds are going to crap in it, whatever. There'll be some weeds. But you'll never have your containers tend to get over uh, overcompacted or overweedy. Because when you walk out and you're, you know, you're cutting a little bit of lettuce and a little bit of, you know, a Swiss chard and some orach for a salad, arugula, what have you, and you see that weed because you've planted everything, it's in it, you know what everything looks like, you immediately pattern recognize oh, that's a piece of grass, 
Or that's yeah, it's some chickweed or whatever. If it's chickweed, let it go. Eat it, right? It's great, great to eat. But if it's something that doesn't belong there, when you just reach in with two fingers and pluck, comes right out. You don't have to bend over. I, anybody that's ever had a garden has has walked by their garden, looked down and said, "Man, that that really looks like it needs to come out of there." But you busted your ass all week and you're tired. And you just don't feel like it. And so by the time you do get to weeding, it's a lot more of a chore with with you know raised up containers. It's just so much easier that you actually get it done, and it minimizes it to begin with. Um, it also, as we kind of mentioned, it extends your seasons. It's really easy to extend your seasons with containers. It's a lot easier to cover them with a, like a row cover type or a blanket or something like that. Um, I decided to get a really great start here as early as I could this year. And I have four four by four container gardens that are really wicking beds. They're part of an aquaponic system. And I planted them with lettuces and broccoli and stuff like that. And the broccoli probably would have handled it, but it was going to get so cold that even the broccoli, is, it was a very young plant, uh, could be kind of tender, get burnt. And even if the plants didn't die with lettuces and stuff like that, I was afraid it would really set them back. So we were going to have these three days where temperature's down into the teens. So I, all I did was I took five pieces of scrap PVC, half inch, and stuck them into the corners and the center of each one of them. And then we just took the big, heavy-duty moving blankets, like you get at U-Haul or uh, uh, what was the place everybody uh, shops has super cheap, Harbor Freight. It's probably the best place to get them. And we just put them over and just took string and just tied them. And since it was only three days, yeah, they went without sun, but, man, they didn't, they didn't get touched. That was so much easier than trying to do a garden bed. So whether it's you know building cloches, mini greenhouses, etc., you know you really can easily extend seasons. And the thing about containers is because it is a container, when we do something like cover it with a mini greenhouse type technology or something like that, we can really warm the entire soil layer up a lot more. So now if we can warm up the soil, we can actually get plants to start earlier and grow faster for us because a lot of times you plant stuff early in the season and what happens is it grows even if it's, if it's frost tolerant you get a little bit of some chill down in the 30s and high 20s it doesn't die but you just have this little plant it just sits there like eh, I'm not ready yet and you, it might be there for three or four weeks before the weather really warms up and it kind of takes off But if we can warm up that soil, then we kick off that biological activity. Most people understand that's what the plant's really waiting on. It doesn't have, like, you've done all this great stuff with organic fertility, but it's going, well, I need, I need some nutrients. And the little, you know, soil organisms that have the, the symbiotic relationships with the plant, that feed on the exudates and make the stuff bioavailable to the plant are just like, dude, I'm really tired because it's really cold and I'll get to you. I'll get to you, man. I, I, I want to give you some manganese, and I need your exudate. And the exudate's a little little sugary, sweet, gooey globule that the plant actually ex exudates on its root. And it attracts that organism. It comes over, nom, 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 and eats it. This is how the soil food web works. And then that, that little organism eats that exudate and then poops out a waste product that has the manganese or magnesium or whatever that plant can Can, can use in it. So the plant is all, it's, it's held back just by the temperature alone, but it's also held back by this biological activity. So if we can warm up that soil, and it can be something that's taking like a big fishbowl and putting it, you know, over the soil in a pot. 
acting as a solarium, and it'll transfer that solar energy into that soil and warm that soil way faster than it can be done in the solid ground itself, where everything disperses much faster. So that's something else that's really an advantage. Next, I mean, I know most of you, once you start growing food, it is like a drug, like the best drug ever. You know, this pepper, you know, you can't, you can't buy food that tastes like food from your backyard. You just can't do it. It, it. It's not possible. Even if somebody grew it the same way you did, by the time it gets shipped and it goes to a wholesaler who distributes it to a market and then you go to the market, that food's five, six, seven days old. It's not bad. It just will never be that warm red pepper that you just pulled off the plant, sliced open with your carry knife, and ate while it was warm, and you could you could feel the essence of that pepper. Like you you can't do that at a store. So then you want you're like I want to share this, and I just don't want to share the food. I want to share what this does for my life. I want my friends, I want my family to be willing to grow their own food too. And if you're doing conventional gardening in the ground, it's great. I love it. I wish I could do more of it here. I wish I had ground that worked. But when you're talking to your sister-in-law, who's a teacher, you know, and, and, and she's got her, you know, her job to do, and she's stressed out, and when she comes home, she just wants to sit down and not hear sound for a while. I can understand that. I know I come down hard in the education system, but, man, I couldn't do the job of being an elementary school teacher. I think I could, but I don't think they would let me do it the way that I would do it. Like, I could do it the way it was done back in the 80s, but I couldn't do it today. So I get that. And it's very hard to convince that person, no matter what their job is. But if you had this in your life, you'd be less stressed out, not more stressed out. And I, when I was started doing this show, I was still working a, you know, a J-O-B. And I worked very long hours. And when I came home, I went to the refrigerator, got a cold beer, went out back and watered my garden where it needed or not so I could be a human being and dealing with my family. So you know that it'll give them not just this quality food, it'll give them this this release too. But it's a big step for people to like we're gonna put in four four by eight raised beds in your backyard. Now you have to take care of this. But hey, why don't I bring a couple? I, I got a great deal on some big flower pots that were on clearance at Walmart. I'll bring them over. I'll plant them for you on your porch. All you have to do is pick the stuff, and any questions you have, you ask me. I'll help you. Really easy to get somebody to do that, isn't it? Really easy, especially when you can say, you know, here's mine. Or, you know, if you're not at your house, here's a picture. This is what you can have. I'll build this for you. And so it's really easy to share with people, and it's really easy to teach others how to do. And it's really easy to kind of spread this, because I believe to solve a lot of the problems that we have, we need to get as much food growing in as many backyards as possible. It changes a person forever when you give them the skill. And I don't know an easier method to get people started on than container gardening. So it's easy to teach others. It fits perfectly, in, if you're a permaculturist, in a zone one design. Because zone one, again, for those that are new to the concept of permaculture, we, we design in zones of activity is what we're talking about. The place that you step foot on every single day, whether you're concerned about gardening or not, is your zone one. So, for instance, if you walk down your sidewalk and you have a, a mailbox like most of suburban America on the curb, and you walk down that little peninsula and open your mailbox, take your mail out and go back in your house. Or when you come home from work, 
You park in the driveway of the garage, but you walk down the, the edge of the uh, parking lot over to the mailbox and then up a little pathway to your house. That, that path and everything just to the left and right of it is zone one. When you walk out your back porch and you step into that one square foot that's outside your door, you're in zone one. Zone two is places maybe you're, at, you're in that spot once a week or twice a week. And for suburban growing, that's pretty much it. There's not a lot of zone three, four, and five there. We can, we can think about it in the design, but that's beyond the scope today. But it's that zone one that's the most intensive. Well, if you think about it, in most of suburban America, with very small postage stamp lots, that zone one a lot of times is a lot of hardscape. So it's sidewalks, it's porches, etc. Well, we can grow in containers there. And a lot of times it's a lot of, um, how do I put this, uh, Lollipop tree landscaping, right? Lollipop landscaping is you drive down a new sub suburb that was just put in to make building the houses easy. They bulldozed every tree. There's not a tree left on the whole damn thing. All the lots are a tenth to two tenths of an acre, except maybe the bigger lots on the corner in the back of a cul-de-sac. There's like five houses. No, there's not five. No, you say there's there's a hundred of them. No, there's five models, five houses. You know, there's a little three-two, there's a big three-two, there's a four-bedroom, there's a two-story five-bedroom, something like that. Like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, there's like five houses that repeat and change color. All the lots are the same, little sidewalk, little driveway, little garage. And right in the middle of everybody's yard is a lollipop tree. Usually some low-value tree that grows fast like a Bradford pear. And then you've got a little island around it, and they put some little posies and flowers and stuff like that. And a lot of people that live in these environments that want a garden, really, if you put like a regular vegetable garden out there, all of a sudden all your neighbors get all wacky and start calling the Department of Making You Sad, which is the, what we call the government. Uh, there's regulations, you get homeowners associates. Well, we add container guards with herbs and, and vegetables and stuff into those pathways and spaces then maintaining them, watering them becomes real easy, and no one really has a problem. And if somebody does cause something, they pick that one up and move it somewhere. So it gives you a lot of flexibility, and it lets you make use of all that zone one space that a lot of times there's really no other way to use it. you got a brick wall. That brick wall gets really great eastern sun. You know, It gets about six to eight hours of sun a day. It gets about four hours of full morning sun. Gets a break in the afternoon, but it's concrete below it. We take a big, long container, and we plant it with something like scarlet runner beans, and we put some lattice up on that wall, and all of a sudden that wall is covered with those beans. And if it's a western wall, then we put something that can handle the afternoon heat there, not a scarlet runner bean. And all of a sudden now we're using all these little margins and spaces that otherwise get unused. And all of a sudden the person that says, But I only have a 10th acre lot, and I only got this little patch of grass for the kids, and I got this porch, and I really don't have room for a garden, can grow more food than a lot of times people are growing with, you know, three or four, four by eight beds. And you're doing it all in containers because you're maximizing that zone one space. And since it's zone one, all the other things we say apply. You're going to water it. You're going to weed it. You're going to take care of it. You're going to plant the next succession. You're going to do all that stuff. So that's just something really advantageous that only containers can, can do. Um, there's lots of cheap and free container options out there. People are like, well, you know, I looked at these concrete flower pots at Home Depot, 80 bucks a piece or whatever. You don't have to do that. I do a lot with the Rubbermaid tubs, and they're about 69 bucks. 
Um, not the Rubbermaid tubs, the Rubbermaid stock tanks, 100 gallon. But I do that because I'm doing wicking beds and aquatic systems and stuff like that. And they just, they're plumbed. I mean, it just makes everything easy. You don't need that. You know, you can use tires. You know, go to a, go to a tire store. You know, even like a disc, like even a chain, like a discount tire or whatever. Say, look, I need really big tires, maybe like truck size tires. The ones that you have to pay to get rid of, I'll come take them. And like one of the things I've done then is cut the sidewalls out of the tires. So you only basically have the belt. You leave a little bit of sidewall for integrity and they work great. And you can do like potatoes, for instance. You take one tire, you fill it up, plant potatoes in it. When the potatoes get really big, you throw another tire on top of it and fill that one up. By cutting the sidewalls out, you're not sitting there packing tires. There's just, just that's another example. IBCs. Uh, international bulk containers. You, know, you check Craigslist, sometimes you can find used ones for next to nothing. You cut that in half, you got two four-foot-by-four-foot containers. Uh, a lot of uh, the, the Mega Mart-type stores, the box stores, the end of the season, they'll sell big flower pots, big plastic flower pots for eight, seven, eight bucks. I mean big ones, like ones you can grow small trees in. Pretty much anything that will hold dirt, you can put dirt in it and grow something in it. Uh, one of my neighbors, they have these, they're like... Um, They look like terracotta, and they're square. I'd say they're about two and a half foot, about 30 by 30 inches. Uh, they're about 20 inches deep, and they were like for making chimneys or something like that. And the guy got them for next to nothing. You know, it's a matter of when you're when you're out and about, scan, look for things. The four by four fiberglass tubs, and I, I'm using them as wicking beds in aquaponics systems, but they're huge. I got them for 30 bucks a piece because the guy that listens to this show named Triple. Noticed them, went and asked the guy that had them laying out in the field what he was doing with them. The guy said, nothing. We used to use them to feed uh, molasses to cattle with. And he got them for 30 bucks a piece. And, you know, I, I was, he's like, I can get all of them. I'm like, well, I'll take 10 if that helps you get the group buy on it or, you know, get the, the deal on them. So, yeah, I mean, like, you never know what you're going to find. Um, so you can find lots of options to do this with. You can, if you, honestly, if you take cinder blocks and build you know, a container, even though you would more like think of that as bed, it's really a container. Uh, I've seen people use wood pallets kind of wired together and basically build what looks like a compost pile, but then plant into it. There's just so many ways that you can do this. Again, just keep your eye out. I've seen, I saw one guy, uh, he had a, his whole backyard was done with containers that were basically old wheelbarrows. People were ready to throw away. Uh, a buddy of mine named David, you guys hear a lot about him, In his backyard, he has an old boat that was leaking that he got for nothing, and he basically turned it into a, an aluminum boat, like a 12-foot aluminum boat, turned it into a container garden. Grows tons of food in it. So there's lots of options. And on some level, it also helps protect your stuff from livestock. One of the things I realized here, in addition to my problems with my native soil and how much rock we have, is if I'm going to have ducks, I have to build a fence to keep ducks out of a garden. Now I have to go inside a fence to work the garden. Now I'm going to spend less time working on the garden. And if I don't do this, then my ducks are going to go in my garden and they're going to eat everything. But if I have a container that the top of it is at least 30 inches high, if something trails over it, they might eat what trails over it. I don't care. But they leave it alone. They just don't bother. Now goats, you know, that's not going to work for a goat. Um, but my chickens too, they just don't get up into my containers. I'm not saying none of yours will. I'm just saying mine don't. So it gives you some degree of protection from your own livestock. Let's talk about some um, 
crops that you can grow. I have a bunch here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. I'm just going to give you some ideas about what you can grow in containers. My favorite thing to grow in containers, even if like this container is going to grow peppers, or this container is going to grow tomatoes, it's also going to grow greens. And it's going to grow a variety of greens. And as the season changes, like I can grow cress early, arugula to the beginning of summer, then something like orach later, uh, I can grow celery, I can grow Swiss chard. I'm going to do that in a succession. And so here I'm just giving you some of them right there, like Swiss chard. It's a great green. You can overwinter it. Um, it just produces and produces and produces and produces. You cut it, it comes back. And it will grow like a big beetroot. It's actually a member of the beet family. It's a beet green is what you're really eating there. But sometimes what will happen with Swiss chard is like it will grow not just down, it grows up. And you end up like with this big, giant, like almost looks like a, a ugly potato sticking up out of the ground. A lot of times with those, you can, like when it's somewhat dormant in the winter, you can dig that up and just stick it further down in. And it kind of recharges it, and it'll go crazy for you. Technically, it's a biannual. So in its second season, what it's wanting to do is send up a seed stock. But if you keep, unlike a lot of biannuals where you can't prevent that, like parsley, you're going to get a point where parsley's like, I'm done. It's time for me to make seed. Shard, if we keep it cut, we can prevent that from, from happening. I, again, I've got shard right now. It's three years old. So Swiss chard. Celery heart regrow is one of my favorite things in the world. I have given up on growing celery from seed. I just have. I have had no luck with it. If you do, great. All I do, I buy organic whole bunches of celery. When we use the celery, I pull the stalks off the outside. I don't cut the bottom off. This is like the this is the most important thing that I've learned. Don't cut the bottom off. Same with regrowing romaine hearts and stuff. Pull the outer leaves off. Leave a good two, three, four of those inner heart stalks. Take the celery, put it in the pot. Make sure it stays moist and mulched, and, to, and you, will, you will see when everything changes. Because when you put it in, it'll be a really pale color. When it turns to that dark green color, it has not only begun to establish itself, it is going to be very, very freeze and frost resistant. I have had celery survive temperatures into the low 20s, no problem. Once it establishes itself, then it's a cut-and-come-again crop. And we in this country, for some reason, think like the leaf of the celery is waste. Those leaves that grow on that celery that regrows are incredible in salads, incredible green. It will never get big and tall and really thick stalks like it does when they're blanched. That's Celery, when it's grown commercially, they blanch it, which either means they put it in a ditch And as it grows, they fill it in so it holds the stalks together or they tie it. And that's why the outer is really green. And as you go in, it gets progressively whiter. When you grow it like this, it'll grow more like a, a bush. Fantastic plant. Um, amaranth. And we always think of amaranth as this huge plant. But you can go to like an organic grocery. You can go buy amaranth by the pound for a couple dollars. That's a lot of seed. It's tens of thousands of seeds. Then you just sprinkle a few seeds of amaranth in your, your pot, your container. And when it gets up to about, you know, 8, 10 inches, you just cut it off at the base and you have a, a cutting stir-fry vegetable or you take the young leaves and use them in a salad. And if it grows back, it grows back. And if it doesn't, you either secession plant a new plant into there or you throw a few more seeds in there. 
and, and you have this continuously high protein, high nutritive value harvest, and you get the seed for almost nothing. If you have space, you let one go to seed, and you got seed for years. Um, Orach, another member of the same uh, goosefoot family as amaranth. Uh, Orach is a fantastic crop. It grows kind of these big, um, rounded leaves, and there's a magenta orach. Looks fantastic in salads, high nutritive value. Again, you can put a few into a pot. So you, all of these ones I mentioned, they could all be in one big pot with a mainstay plant like a tomato or a pepper. Uh, cress, Persian cress is, is a Persian cress is one. Uh, wrinkled, crinkled cress is another one. Cresses are fantastic early season as it gets warmer. Transition to something like arugula. Arugula is my favorite green to grow, container or otherwise. I have wild arugula all over now from growing it in containers and letting some plants go to seed. I get it grown on the ground. I got it grown and reseeding itself in containers. It is like a perpetual crop. It's got that peppery bite. By midsummer, it does get a little bit too bitter, but then you just wait. That's when you let it go to seed, and by By the time you get into fall, it's regrowing from seed again. So it's a spring, early summer, early fall, late fall, even into winter crop that you can grow in containers. And then you can just kind of bounce these around. As for mainstream crops that grow grow in containers, tomatoes and peppers, love it. Love it. Um, One of the problems with tomato blight is that it is a fungus born in the soil. And once you get it, it's hard to get rid of it. But if you start out with good soil that doesn't have the fungus and you grow tomatoes in your containers, you're going to have a lot better chance of beating blight. Uh, peppers do fantastic in containers. And peppers are a weird plant, man. Peppers, early in the season, they love lots of sun. By the time they get big and they start setting fruit, they like partial shade. That's why my buddy David calls me the pepper whisperer. He gets all pissed and uses bad words when he comes over because we'll walk in my aviary and there's just peppers everywhere in late summer. It's like, mine all stopped. Well, I grow them in the aviary and then right now I have all the shade cloth off and about mid-June, early July, I'll trick some people in to come over, feed them some beer and some barbecue and we'll put the, the netting back up onto the uh, aviary and I'll have peppers all the way through. Well, not everybody can have a 50-foot-long aviary with quail in it, right? So if you have containers and you can put them where they get all that great sun early on, and as it gets really hot in the year and you want them to have a little more shade, you just move the container. So it's a great plant to do that. With tomatoes, a bit harder to do that. Tomatoes, try to stick to cherry tomatoes and your patio-type tomatoes, your determinant tomatoes. Uh, Husky Cherry Red is probably the best one to look at for this. Um... Another thing, a fruit, a perennial, that people don't think about, that's like the best plant in the world to grow in containers, especially in a lot of the country, is blueberry. Um, where I live, you cannot grow blueberries in the ground here. Blueberries like acid, I got alkaline, and really alkaline soils. So blueberries, we can custom design that soil mix. We can use a little bit of, uh, what is the, the plant I'm thinking of, the flower that everybody grows that likes acid. God, I hate when I forget like this. Azaleas. So you some azalea fertilizer and help move that to the acid and you can grow blueberries. And what you do is you train your blueberries to grow tree-like. So instead of this just complete bush, you use a more of a high bush style blueberry. Prune out the understory so it has trunks like a tree and it's more of a canopy. Then you can plant you know, your greens and verbs and stuff like that underneath it 
so that it successes to that. So it's getting some shade from the bush long after the blueberries have been harvested and it's just you know got leaves on it. And you're still getting a harvest from that same container, but yet you're being able to grow, grow, blueberry, grow blueberries. And you can do blackberries and some other berries too, but blueberries are the perfect plant to do this with. You can prune them to just about any shape and form that you want. You get that empty space. And then you get fall color. Blueberry leaves turn this beautiful red uh, before they fall off in the winter. So you get color into the fall. And then when they fall off, you can be growing all types of winter greens like cresses down in there when they're not getting any shade. And then you just go back into succession the next year. Really, really simple. Uh, carrots. Carrots are something people don't think about growing in containers. They really should. Carrots need deep, loose soil to get a nice, straight carrot. Well, you get that with containers. And that's another thing that, like, I like to use the easy sow type carrots, the ones that are in a pellet or they have a coating on them. And the best thing to do with those is whatever mulch you're using in your container, when you put a carrot seed in there, put two where one would go. With the easy sow, you can actually do that instead of putting, like, 20 because they're so fine. Put it down, pull the mulch back, and just press it into the soil. Even if you see it a little bit, that's great. Carrot really needs a little bit of light to germinate. When it germinates, push the push the mulch back around it. And you can have in a container like four carrots growing in that container with a whole bunch of other shit. And you just let them grow until they get the size that you're looking for. And when you pop one out, you pop something else back in. And so you're not going to grow you know, 100 pounds of carrots that way. But what you can do is grow high value, you know, purple carrots. Purple Passion Carrot or something like that. Uh, Scarlet Nance is another great carrot. You can grow and have this like harvest as you desire. By the way, the greens of carrots, we don't eat them in this country. We're crazy. They taste great. They're a great salad green. They kind of taste more like parsley. They're the same family. So that's another thing. We can actually take a little bit of that carrot green all the way up until we harvest the carrot. So that's another thing we can do. Uh, daikon Radish is another one of those plants that... What I like about daikon is it basically you just have a sprig that comes up. It doesn't take a lot of space up, but you get that big tuber going down into the planter. Now, I'm not going to say take your, you know, your pot and grow five daikon in. I think it's wasteful. But we can take and grow that one daikon kind of the back of the container with maybe a pepper or a tomato to the other side of it in the back. And then we kind of success forward. Well, what we can also do is we can let that daikon go to seed. It'll get kind of this great big bush. But it won't really shade anything out. It's a very open bush form. And it'll put flowers on. That'll bring in insects. That'll bring insects in. Now, as those insects come in, we're getting other things pollinated. We're attracting you know, other beneficial insects. But they're going to pollinate those little uh, daikon flowers. It's self-fertile, so it's going to make these little pods. Those little pods look like little pea pods. I'm not a huge fan of radishes. Those little radish pods are amazing. They're good in salads, and they're amazing stir-fried like some garlic oil. So now we get that as a crop. Unlike a lot of root vegetables, daikon can do all that without the root getting really split. So as soon as we harvest all the little seed pods, before we let it go any further, now we pop that daikon out. We got a great big daikon root. We can ferment that or do whatever it is that you want, you know, do uh, shavings. or I like to use a, a julienne peeler and make like a, like a pickled daikon with that. So now we got another harvest out of that one container. You start to see how you can do so much. Again, watch my video. It's just got music to it. It just shows all the things. But when you start seeing the containers, like, holy crap. I didn't know you could do that. You, and I think sometimes you have to see it to understand how much you can do with, like, one, you know, 10-gallon container. Uh, herbs. 
basil, oregano, parsley, sage, rosemary, chives, and dill. Those are just all fantastic. When I do my big container gardens, uh, you know, like four by fours, hundred gallons, whatever, I just take some dill and I just sprinkle dill. Before I, when I have all the mulch pulled back, I do my fertility for the year. I just sprinkle dill, and then I plant my other stuff, and some comes up and some doesn't. And you get these nice sprigs of dill coming up. You cut what you need, and eventually you use it all. But it was all like it was all free. Um, parsley, you know, you got to have at least one container growing parsley. You have to. And if you do that, you can have like a continuous harvest of parsley for like two years off that plant. And then you should need to plant another one as it goes into its second year. So when it goes to seed, you've got another one coming up. Uh, so that's another one that's just, I think, fantastic. If you, you get into certain ones like sage and rosemary, you're better off kind of going into a dedicated container for those. They're big and they're perennial. Same with oregano. But you have a few you know, dedicated herb containers. Then you're growing some things like some basil and, and chives and dill mixed in with your other containers. And all of a sudden, you have this amazing resource on a porch. It really is that simple. A lot of people don't think about it. We can do beans and peas. We can do bush, but what I like to do is trailing plants, vines, and then use that vertical space. Because now we can have this container. Let's go back to the, the daikon and, and uh, pepper. So we got a pepper, let's say a jalapeno, and it's growing there. And then next to it, we got that daikon growing. And then we pop in, let's say, something like four pole beans, and it's up against a deck. So we just bring a couple strings down that deck and drill some holes in the edge of the container and attach them. We train those beans up that. We still got the whole front of the container. So now one 10-gallon container, I'm growing a big daikon. I'm getting the daikon pods. I'm getting a whole season of jalapenos. I can prune the jalapeno, bring the container in at the end of the season, and just put it back out with the pepper in it next year. I'm also getting four bean plants, and I'm not going to get a giant bucket of beans. But I am going to be able to go out, you know, every couple weeks if they're a perennial, you know, ever-bearing bean, and get enough beans for a small side of beans to go with my dinner that night that I can season with all my other stuff that I'm growing from one 10-gallon container. And if I have 10 of those, all of a sudden I got something, don't I? See, see why this is such a, an important thing to me. The next is nasturtiums and other flowers. Now, I love nasturtiums. They look great. The greens taste good. The flowers taste good. They are peppery hot. They do got a, a pungent spice. Now, the thing for me anyway, the way I feel about it with an assertion, is they are as hot as some hot peppers. But you eat a hot pepper, uh, you got a you got a while to live with your decision, right? It's it stays there. It's persistent. That capsaicin sticks to our lips and our tongue. An assertion has a heat that's a lot more like horseradish. It really bam punches you in the face, then it goes away. And if it's mixed with other things, it's not so bad. It makes, it makes a salad look great. The greens and the flowers make salads look great. Um, I put nasturtiums in everything. Every container pops some nasturtium seeds in there. And just a fantastic... And then other flowers. Uh, marigolds. Uh, calendula, which is known as pot marigold. Anything like blue salvia. Blue salvia sage that brings in bees. You know, don't think everything you plant has to be inedible. A lot of flowers are. But like the Tagastes marigolds. Like when you go to Home Depot or Lowe's, or any box store, and you see all those orange and yellow marigolds, that's a Tagastes marigold. That is actually toxic to eat. Uh, it actually is a medicinal plant. Uh, the flowers crushed up are good on bee stings, but you don't want to eat it. 
When you hear about an edible marigold, you're talking about calendula, known as pot marigold. And the greens and the flowers are edible. We can use all that. There's a, there's a Mexican marigold that has some culinary uses as well. Lavender brings bugs and stuff in. So mixed in with these containers, we can have some dedicated, maybe have a dedicated container of lavender. And see, now we, we change the whole dynamic of what companion planting means. Because we can just take that lavender container and just put it right in with all our vegetables. And it's going to get all of that insect attraction. Isn't this cool? Uh, so nasturtiums and other flowers. And then don't overlook sweet potato. Sweet potato is my favorite crop that we grow. And I actually probably let quite a bit of tuber go to waste from sweet potato. Because we don't eat a lot of starch. So <clears throat> we might eat... 15 to 20 big purple sweet potato tubers a year. That's about it. And I'm sure I could produce a lot more. I'm sure that a lot of them just rot in the pot over the winter. Um, but we eat sweet potato greens about once every other night through the summer. We get to a point where it's so hot here that you can't really grow most of the greens. Uh, about Swiss chard is about the only one that really still keeps going. Even arugula kind of gives up. at a Like I said, it just gets too bitter. Sweet potato greens are fantastic cooked, and that they, the hotter it gets, the faster they grow. Now, we could take that sweet potato slip, or even a little piece of sweet potato with, with an eye on it that's starting to turn into a slip, and we put that in the edge of one of our containers. And it will grow up and out and trail over the side of that container. And we can just trim off some greens, whatever we want. It takes almost no space up in the pot. So, I mean, there's just so much we can do. But this is where I want you to start thinking about self-watering containers. And I really look at there's two ways to skin this. One is you can run some drip line and stuff and automate watering a whole patio full of containers really easily. That's one way. And the other is self-watering where we create a false bottom and that maybe once every three or four days we just fill up that reservoir in the heat of summer. And then most of the year you don't even, you can fill it up and you know, you're good for weeks. And if you get rain, the rain fills it up. You got to make sure you have an overflow Um, but the beauty of self-watering containers are perfect for water conservation. Um, and this is one of the things I like about containers. In a summer here in Texas, even where people have better soil than me, you use a, I don't care how much mulch you have, strategic shade, etc. you use a lot, a massive amount of water for a small garden because it dries out so quickly. With self-watering container gardens, You use a fraction of the water for the same level of production. So it's really great for that. It is really a light form of hydroponics or aquaponics, even when you're doing it without it. Because you still have the same concept going on. You have a biological system in that reservoir. You have some sort of gravel, lava rocks probably best, some pipe down in there as well to keep open flow. And that water wicks up, and you have a whole different life web in that water than what you have in the soil. And those two combine. And like many things in nature, when two combine, they are more than the sum of their parts individually. So if the soil web had a factor of like six in how, out of ten, how valuable it was to your plants, and then the water element had a, a, a thing of like a six out of ten, you're, now you're at a 12 out of ten. But I think you're more like an 18 when those two things work together, because they both make each other stronger. And I don't want to go too much into it, because we've talked a lot about wicking beds and self-watering gardens, but I do want to leave it out today, because it makes things awesome. Now, I talked about fertility and building fertility, but when we go to self-watering, it takes the fertilization and the recharging of fertility through the season 
That makes it even easier. Any sort of a liquid fertilizer, we just dump it in. It goes through everything. And then it slowly wicks up. And it's like, it's the difference between taking a shot of a drug and taking a time-release capsule. Think of it that way. When we add it into that reservoir, then little bits of water slowly wick up and the roots can slowly take that nutrient. And a fertility boost lasts a lot longer. Or if we do a soil drench, let's say we mix up some garret juice and we do a soil drench, okay? It would be really smart of us to not fill up our reservoir in our self-watering container. And then when we do a soil drench, a lot of that's going to go down and end up in the reservoir. And what's going to come back up? So it gets done twice. More efficient. So really great for fertilization. And allows you to go a week or a longer without really doing any gardening work. Like, once you have a good self-watering system set up, you know, you can leave for a week and come back and everything just got bigger. Especially if you plumb it or put some sort of timer on it. You know, it gets five minutes of water flow to it a day, every other day or something like that. It maybe even overflows a little bit just to be safe. But nothing's, nothing's going to dry up. You can be in the middle of a drought. I, you know, I'm having a bad week. I don't have time this week. Something happened. Got to go take care of my mom. Got to go take care of my dad. Got to go take care of my brother. And I just don't have time to tend to. You're not going to come back and have everything dead and withered, which happens in the summer in gardens if you're not there to take care of them. Um, so really it has that advantage, too, of the longevity, uh, of, of basically longevity of abuse is the way I would put it. Uh, kind of falling down on a job for a while. So before we move on to uh, the final segment, takers, we're, we're about ready, ready to wrap up here with some creative ideas. Uh, I just want to encourage you that even if you're not going to do self-watering for whatever reason, because there's times where it's just it's not in the cards for you, um, especially with containers you want to be portable, there are a lot of things you can do to still make irrigation either automated or kind of bulletproof. Um, you can do things with misting wands and mist sticks and timers. You can do things with just half-inch PVC pipe and head sprinkler heads uh, with, with slip and thread adapters. And a little head goes on there, and they make them 360 degrees to 90 degrees, small, corner, 75. Like you can set up almost a stand alone uh, PVC where it just kind of sits like a stand. You could even paint it a color so it looks good. Have that hooked up to a hose bib. And a mechanical timer on it. You know, a little orbit mechanical timer. They're like 10 bucks. They sell them at Walmart, Lowe's, Home Depot, all those places. And so you just go out and you just take that timer and you just turn it, let's say, to 15 minutes, 5 minutes, whatever it is that you need that to be watered for. And you just go out there once a day and turn that on. Like in the morning before you go to work, you just walk out, click, and it just takes care of it. If it rains that day, you don't do it. When you come home, you need to water when you come home. Instead of being like I was back in the day where I'd come home with a beer and sit there and hold a, hold a garden hose and water those eight big beds, you'd come home, pop a top, walk out in the backyard, plop in a chair, turn that timer, sit back and watch the garden take care of itself. So do try to put some level of automation or at least ease of irrigation because the one downside to containers, especially if they're not self-watering, is when they're dry, they're dry. You know, plants can put down deeper and deeper roots in in, in a in-ground in bed. That's that's the one big advantage there. And if you have good soil, you'll be surprised that carrot that's a six-inch carrot, they might have a hair root coming off the tip of it. They can go down two feet. 
right? So you do not have that in a container. So really the one place you got to shore up is to make sure that whatever irrigation needs to be done gets done. Here's some creative thoughts kind of quick at the end here. Number one, just realize there's no limit to container size. Again, you take a IBC and a Sawzall and zip it in half, and you got two 4x4 containers. They're roughly 4x4. They're not quite that, right? Um, you, my, again, my buddy David used an old boat. Wheelbarrows. I mean, uh, I've seen just about anything can be repurposed into a garden container. And if it, it's something you're thinking, well, that wouldn't really look good. Well, can you go out and find some old fence material and take some old fence wood and make it look really cool and craftsman-like and you just kind of hide the ugly container? So don't think the container's got to be 5-gallon buckets and 10-gallon pots. They can be huge. They can look like a bed except they're up out of the ground. Right. Um, next, I talked about it a lot all the way through here, but I want to reiterate it again. Companion planting and succession planting is your key. And one of the things you really need to do with containers, when they start to get really, like you start out at the beginning of the year and they just, the slow growth and this one plant's growing, the other plant's not, and put in seeds and they ain't come yet, and all of a sudden, <laughs> growth everywhere. You really need to kind of think of it like a forest and you're pruning out the understory. Like your bigger plants, like your peppers and all, take the the little limbs and branches down low, up you know up six, eight inches. That plant gets two foot tall or more. You might go up, you know, ten inches and prune the bottom off of it. Open that up to that lower understory. Prune some of that you know harvest. And when you're not harvesting, just do some pruning out. Make sure you get airflow through there. And that's the key to getting the kind of thing I talked about going on today, where there's like ten things in one pot. Again, watch my video. And I really didn't think about it when I was making the video. I just took a bunch of pictures and stuck them together in a slideshow. But when you look at it, you'll see what I'm talking about there with making space for things. Um, next, one of the things you can do with container gardening that people really don't think of that are space challenges, get permission to use other spaces. Uh, a lot of times people can get permission to use space at their workplace. And, you know, your, your, your boss might be like, I don't need they're going to garden out here. But if you wanted to take four or five containers and put them around the, the, the outer part of the workspace, you know, especially if there's an office front or something where people are coming, instead of paying a landscaper now, you're doing it for free, but you're getting all the food. Also a good way to spread the message, right, you know, and spread the, spread the addiction. But there might be a lot of places you can increase your total production. Think of it like micro-spin farming. So spin farmers are people that go to somebody and say, I'm going to put a garden in your backyard, and then I'm going, to, I'm going to lease the space, or I'm going to give you food, and I'm going to sell the rest. And it's a way to farm with no land. Well, think of this like a micro spin farming. If you can find places where you can place containers, all of a sudden you've got more production with less space. And if we can do some timers and some water automation or some wicking beds or whatever, we only have to go by maybe once a week to harvest, to plant, and to weed a little bit. There's not a lot of work involved. And then if we lose that space, we just pick the container up and move it. Now, we don't want to go to the giant containers when we're doing this, but you know, your ten gallon, you can take a 10-gallon pot, two guys throw in the back of a pickup truck. So that's another uh, thing that you can do that people don't think of. Uh, you can get started any time of the year. Let that really kind of sink in. I know I mentioned it already, but I want to mention it here again at the end. You can do this way early and way late with protection, with cover, with things like using uh, fish tanks or fish bowls or jars of solariums. You just take a big half-gallon ball jar 
and stick it in the dirt a little bit over a young plant when it's still really too cool for it, and that little pepper, tomato, or whatever starts taking off those first three, four weeks when it would be lackluster, and you pop it off, put it away for the season, and you've got an early start. We can heat that soil up. There's so many things we can do to extend and, and, and make seasons start earlier. And that, that opens up a lot of things. Um, don't only think about growing from planted starts. Grow from seed. Why wouldn't you? Uh, like nasturtiums, just don't transplant well. You just put the nasturtium seeds with beans, don't transplant well. There's certain plants that just go ahead and start from seed. And when you start from seed, you can use more seed than you can, you can conceive of. Because what we can do is we can plant, let's say we want two or three big lettuce plants in one container. We can plant 50, 70, 100 lettuce plants in there. And as they start coming up, we pull the babies and we use them as salad green babies. Then we let some grow more like a mescaline mix, as long as we clear out those ones that we eventually want to be bigger plants. And then we cut those into a salad bowl. And then we plant some other stuff back into that space after that's done its deal and get those big lettuce plants come along. So seed gives you this ability to do so much more than by just putting plants in alone. A lot of like the lettuce plants, the, the size you'd be transplanting them at, you'd be harvesting them as baby greens or even microgreens um, if you did them from seed. And you, you, can do, you can plant so much more for so much less money and time and effort. I didn't mention this, but microgreens are another thing. You know, I'll take some of my, my grow beds like this, and when there's a lot of space in them, I'll soak a handful of sunflower seeds, pull the mulch back in that big empty space that's going to be taken up eventually by a pepper, right? That pepper's only four inches tall right now. And I'll lay down just a layer of, of those uh, sunflower seeds and take like a piece of like plastic garbage bag and lay it on top of it and put a board on it to weight it down and leave that for a couple, three days until you start starting to push up. Well, then you take that off and very quickly, I'm talking days, those leaves will pop the seed heads off, and you'll have a crop, you know, of uh, of microgreen uh, sunflower greens. Will you cut those, take a trowel and kind of till them back in, and then plant your next row? Whether it's more microgreens, whether it's a, now you're going to go to beans or whatever. Like you really have to think that way, and seeds open up a lot more than just going with plants. Use those vertical spaces. You know, you can move a container, so move it up against something. Any like go out on your deck, go out in your yard and look what existing vertical spaces are there and can I put a container there? If the answer is yes, put a container there and use that vertical space. Trees are vertical spaces. You can go out if you have a big tree, for instance, and it's like let's say you have one of those things where you know, here's a thing that's typically done. Somebody puts a deck in. They don't want to kill the tree. So they frame around the tree so the deck goes around the tree. Okay, um, now put a container, like a box, around the tree, plant beans in it, go up the tree about five or six feet, and just pop in some screws. Just like some drywall screws or something like that. Because they won't, you know, you're not going to bear any real heavy weight, and the stuff they're made out of, they won't rust. Okay, so we pop, you know, one on each side, we got four of those. Take a piece of aluminum fencing wire or stainless steel electric fence wire. Wrap it around that, bring it down, and attach it. Now train a grape, uh, not a grape, a, 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 a bean or a cucumber up that. And it looks great. 
And when the season's over, if you don't want that wire there, just unwrap the wire, wrap it up with your hand. If you use stainless steel or aluminum, it won't rust. And just tuck it in behind the, the, uh, the, the container. That little black, see the reason it says they use a drywall screw? It's black, it blends right in with you, and then when you see it. And it just, wait till next winter, unwind that, that wire, and run another vine up it. There's so much you can do like that with vertical spaces. And the other, the last thing is, think about expansion as you desire. So let's say that you were growing a conventional garden, and you're like, it's mid-season, it's really kind of hot out, uh, you know, digging another bed right now, I'm starting with raw soil, and I'm going to need it, oh, God. But if I want to do, I'm like, you know what, I want a couple more containers. You source your containers, however you're going to do them, you fill them up with perfect dirt, you put mulch on them, and you plant them. Let's say that it is really the hottest time of year and you're doing some things that aren't going to deal well with the heat, but you want to success them in the fall. Put your containers where they get a lot more shade until those plants get up and then move them into your regular container gardening area. Like when you start thinking differently about this, instead of, see, I guess it's the big thing to finish with. What a lot of people think of when it comes to container gardening is because I don't have the space, the time, the money, whatever. To do a regular garden, I'm settling for container gardening. That is not the way to think about this. You have to think about this like, because I want to grow a shitload of food the easiest way possible with as much flexibility as I can get, I get to do container gardening. And, and you, you'll, all of a sudden you'll realize like you're kicking the ass out of a lot of people with conventional gardens. Now, you can't beat the person like my grandfather. Let's just be honest. Beautiful soil, been managed for 40 years, easy to dig, 25 foot by 4 foot wide rows, you know, two-tenths of an acre of that. You are not going to grow as much food as he did. But I'll tell you what you can do that he couldn't. You can, from the very beginning of the season to the very end of the season, eat something out of your containers every day. They practiced, you know, more of... We plant a row of cucumbers. So you got to wait for those cucumbers to start producing. Then they produce like gangbusters. But that entire time you're waiting for your first cucumbers, that's 60 days, the container gardener is producing orach, some peas early in the season, some sweet potato green, some beans, and some cucumbers are eventually coming along. They got some carrot coming up. They got some arugula and cress that are, you know, 20 day crops. So. No, you can't compete with the total pounds of production, but the, that type of gardener, unless they're bringing these techniques into them, and you can, right? Most don't because they, they, get, they get carried away with all that extra space, and they don't think this way. Unless they bring these techniques, they can't keep up with the frequency, the variety, how much, how often. They can't do it. Because one has a strength, the other doesn't. And the other side of it is, even with conventional gardening, and you want to bring these techniques, well, what are you doing? You're bending over and you're pulling weeds. With container gardenings, you're just kind of hanging your hand down there to do things. You automate all your watering. Your soil's perfect. You pull weeds out like you're pulling a toothpick out of a pack. So there's you get so much advantage here. Don't think of it as settling. And this is why I say it's for everybody, even somebody with that big garden. I would rather grow all my high succession, high variety, high value kitchen garden stuff in containers than in a big garden. It's just easier. 
I'd you know you take your tomato. You want to? I love tomatoes in containers, but if I'm growing a big garden, I don't really need to do that. The big tomato row makes sense. So I plant all those tomatoes, mulch them, throw some weed block down. Yeah, okay, there's my tomatoes. But orach, arugula, Persian cress, uh, you know, uh, Swiss chard with some daikon and some herb blends. I, I could just do so much more. It is an incredible advantage that you're given. So see it that way. I hope this show kind of inspired you this year. I, I think it's a great entry-level drug to the new gardener. Right to be able to realize, like I don't really need all this space, and I want you to think about it this way too. Like a lot of people will say, "Well, they get into gardening, and they look up raised bed gardening, and it is a great place to start, and they learn something like square foot gardening, and so they decide, well, I'm going to put in two four foot by four foot beds. It doesn't take a lot of containers, even if we're talking ten gallon pots, to give you more production than two four by four beds." You start to realize what you can do with all these techniques we talked about today, and you can probably do more faster if that's what you were going to do for a garden with containers. And you're going to have less problems, and it's easier to automate. It's easier to handle fertility. It's easier to handle irrigation. Get excited, take advantage of it, and start taking responsibility for the food that you put in your body. It will transform your life. And if you've been doing it up till now, make this the year that you add this to what you're doing. And make it even better. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the show. If you like this show and the work that we do, remember there's a couple ways you can support us. One of them is to join the Members Support Brigade. To do that, go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. You see all the discounts you get and everything. Your membership pays for itself. I just brought you a discount on CBD oil this week. 20% on high-quality CBD oil. If you are a person that uses CBD oil, Check out Hemp Magic. Look at their pricing, and then factor in the 20% compared to what you're using now. And I bet you're going to get it as good or better product for less money and pay for your membership. I got another discount vendor. I just signed on Friday, and I'm going to be bringing them to you. You can watch the blog today. I'll probably get them up on the blog and into the MSB today. I'll be bringing the announcement probably tomorrow, though. Um, this is totally unrelated to CBD oil. I'm always trying to bring you new stuff. Right now, we don't have anything like this. I love this product, and if you follow my Instagram and you saw the video I put out with my grandson over the weekend, you know what it is. If you want to find out early, go to my Instagram at It's a Jack Life, and you can see what it is. You'll know it when you see it. It's really good, and it's it's kid approved. So it's a food product. I'll tell you that. And if a kid approves a prepper food product, it's a good product. So got that coming for you either tomorrow. At the worst, it'll be. Thursday, I'll be bringing you that, so consider being a member. And then the easy way, the painless way, doesn't cost you anything directly, is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. You go there, you find all my reviews on Amazon. Anything there, it's in alphabetical, categorized. You can see the most recent reviews. If it's there, I own it, I bought it, I spent my money on it, or I would not recommend it to you. And you can also just look at the deals of the day and stuff like that on Amazon, but as long as you start at tspaz. So all you do is start there. Whenever you buy, help support us. Now, I do usually have an item of the day. A lot of times I recycle them because I do not, I don't just pick a product every day to review. I, that would brew my whole credibility. Because, again, I either bought this thing, used it myself, and would spend my money on it. Or it's something I borrowed. I didn't need one, but I borrowed it. I touched it that someone else had that I can verify. <clears throat> or I don't list it. So I can't just get, you know, it's been doing this four years now. The, the Amazon reviews. 
I can't just have an item every day because I, I just don't buy that much stuff. Um, so I bring stuff around. But when I come up with something new, I bring it to you. Today I got something new. Last year I brought you the Nebo Larry, uh, Little Larry Light. Little plastic light was like $8 to $11, depending on how many you bought. Great light. You guys bought hundreds of them. Little work light. Guy found one in the ceiling, sent me it. And I got to thinking, you know, I, I'm a guy, I'm a light fanatic. I love good lights. And I wonder what else Nebo had. Well, I went out and checked a light called the Nebo Big Larry. This is a 400 lumen uh, aluminum magnetic base work light. Unlike a tactical light or a typical flashlight that shoots a straight beam, this has that big, long work light, like something you would use as a mechanic under a hood. And that's what it's for. It's a mechanic's light. It's an inspection light. Uh, it uses three double A's, so it's not small, but it's not huge. Man, this thing's bright. I put out a whole review on it today, including a video. I take it into a bathroom where it's completely dark, show you how bright it is. Three settings. It's got very bright, really bright, and it's got like a red flash for an alert. The big thing, though, is... Like I said, it's an inspection light. So if you're working on something, have you ever, like when you were a kid, if you're my age, you probably had an uncle or a dad, like, hold this light for me. And you're doing it wrong. And you, like, you didn't do it wrong. He moved his head and it blocked it out. you got that little area that's really bright, and then that's almost blinding, and then a little bit more where you can see, and then it fades off. And the closer the light is, the more narrow that beam is. This is like a wash, a wide swath. So it's really great for its intended purpose. It's got a magnetic base, so you can stick it on the hood of your truck or whatever and see what you're doing. Great for that. Here's what I like about it for prepping. Have you ever been the only person with a light? I know you have. I know you have. You're like, it's dark. Like, I can't see. Anybody got a light? No. Somebody's got their phone out or a freaking Bic lighter trying to light the way. And you pull out a flashlight, and it's bright. But if people are behind you, they can't see. And if you're behind them, you can't see because it's got that beam. You take this thing, turn it on, hold it up to like head height, and it's like a room in front of you. That's what I love about it. I've been taking it out to put the ducks to bed at night, and just to get a feel for what, how I, you know, how I like it. Check this thing out again. Nebo's the company. N E B O. Big Larry 400 aluminum magnetic work light. You can find it at T Spaz. Find the review on the blog. And if you're not on the Daily Mail, go to the site, click on subscribe, subscribe to my email list, and then when all this stuff comes out, you get one email a day. Just bullet points and links. That's all that it is. I don't spam anybody at all, ever. Uh, and I don't share your information, so subscribe to the email list. And check out all our social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff. With that, ready to wrap the song up today. We're in Journey Week. Um, today's song is called Escape. It was released in 81 or 82, I'm not sure. Um, but Escape was probably Journey's biggest album, I, I would say. Certainly the biggest album at the time that it was reduced, up-to-date type thing. And um, everybody loved the album cover. It was one of those things. People had the concert T-shirts everybody wore in the 80s with the little space thing and Escape on it and all. It was a big theme in the Atari video yeah, Atari video game journey. had an Atari video game, Escape, right? Uh, it was kind of the whole thing. You're helping the band get through the roadies and stuff. But the song kind of flopped. I think the song charted at like 76 or 77 or something like that. It just flopped. And I get the feeling based that they named the whole album after, after it. When you listen to the song, see what it's about, that like Journey was probably surprised that that song didn't do better. I think they probably expected that it would be a, a, a big hit, and it just wasn't. It's a good song, but 
I think it was overshadowed. The Escape album had songs you're probably more familiar with from Journey on it. Certainly three of their biggest hits were on that album. Uh, Don't Stop Believing, um, Open Arms, and Who's Crying Now. Those were all big hits for Journey, and I think they overshadowed this song. This song also, like, radio play is important to music being successful even today, but in, like, the 70s and 80s, it was everything. And this song's long for a radio play song, like five minutes and 50 seconds. Like, the perfect hit for the ra get radio play back then was, like, two minutes, 57 seconds. Like, it's usually, like, a lot of these old songs, like, they have that just under three minutes, you know, and then up to almost four minutes. But that just under three minutes, man, that was, like, the sweet spot. So this type almost doubled that. So that hurt its radio play. But what this song's about is kind of coming of age. Getting to the point where, like, you're out on your own. And you have to escape the childhood behind you and all the things that people in society tell you you need to be doing and carve your own way and make your own life. If you ask me, we need music like this to come back for our young people today, to send that message. Because I, I really... I, again, I try not to pick on entire generations. I really don't. And there's some amazing young people out there. But there is a chronic problem, like a failure to launch problem right now, with young people that they don't develop life skills, they don't go out and attack the world, they don't make things happen. If you're one of the young people who listens to this show, you're probably making things happen. Let this song be kind of an anthem to you. And to those of you like me that are getting older, that are starting to flirt with 50, or even older, you know, we could use a little of this spirit too. One of the things our age does is bring temperance and wisdom and a more conservative approach to life. There's a real fire of the youth. And, and young people will tend to, once they get past that fear stage, something seems like a good idea, they go try it. Well, we talked about doing something different today, container gardening. I know it doesn't sound like an active rebellion, but if you've always wanted to grow your own food, take the knowledge you got today and go rebel with it. Because growing your own food is the single greatest act of insurrection you can commit in a modern age where everybody wants to define for you the way your life should be until you're you are dependent upon the system. Escape that mentality. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.